We are in the third week of our series, Making Sense of Jesus. If you're just joining us, we've been looking at how Jesus reveals himself to us and makes himself known through our five senses. Uh, but the, the overarching purpose of this series is, is looking at how Christ doesn't just make himself sensible to us, but he reveals himself to us so that he can be made known through us in the lives of others. And so far, we've explored uh, the sense of sight, the sense of taste, uh, and this week, we're going to be exploring the sense of touch. And many, you know, believe that after vision, uh, touch is the best way that we can explore the physical world and provide evidence of its, its existence. And uh, touch, then, is this primarily exploratory sense. You can pick up something and have your eyes closed and make sense of its shape and, and deduce what it may or may not be. Uh, we can touch things, we can pick up things, we can feel them, and touch helps us connect with the world, but it especially helps us connect with other people. Uh, when Julia and I were going through premarital counseling, uh, we were required to read a book called The Love Languages. Has anyone read this book, The Love Languages? Yes, The Love Languages. Uh, they talk about these different expressions of love and how you can fill up your love tank. It's as cheesy as it sounds, trust me, but it has substance. And so there's, there's five love languages. Quality time, gifts of service, words of affirmation, and physical affection. And now, we were taking this class with hundreds of people in Florida, and uh, we were broken into groups, and we're all discovering what our primary love language is. But without a doubt, every table had that guy, you know, that guy who's like, well, you know, my love language is physical touch, baby. You know, it's just always, without a doubt, it came, came up. Uh, Bub Holding used that very joke just the other day. But there's something about touch that expresses affection. We get this, a handshake, you know, the fist bump, the miss bump where you don't know what exactly is happening, the high five, the chest bump, the hug with one or two pats, or three but not four, that's too much. Uh, all of these things help us connect with one another. And touch, it's foundational for expressing comfort. You know, we put an arm around someone when we're sharing grief. We hug it out, we hold hands, we hold each other's faces. We wipe away tears. Touch can convey comfort in a way that words seldom can. And when it comes to processing the human experience, touch matters. And when it comes to the sense of touch and Jesus, we have ample scriptures to explore this sense. Jesus touches lepers and heals them. He touches the eyes of the blind and they see. He touches the ears of the deaf and they hear. We often find him touching the untouchable. And his touch, it's healing, it's comforting, it's transforming. And it tells us that no one is so far gone that God won't reach out and touch them and bring them into his kingdom. And yet for all the comfort that could be found in a variety of these passages, that's not where we're going to go this morning. Rather, we're going to explore baptism. As we explore baptism, uh, our side of the equation is actually feeling, which is technically thermoception, not touch. Thermoception is actually our sixth sense. Yes, I just blew your minds. Our sixth sense isn't intuition. It's thermoception. It's how we can feel the wind but not touch the wind, right? This is the other sense. I didn't even know about this, but anyways, it exists. And uh, you can reach out and touch water. You can feel water. But in baptism, uh, you are being baptized by someone else. So the, the water, in a sense, is enveloping you. You are feeling it. You're being touched by Christ through the act of baptism. And so this morning, we're going to focus primarily on Matthew chapter 28, 
verses 16 through 20. But we're also going to have to jump around to a few other scriptures to make sense of baptism. They'll be up on the screen, but keep your Bibles handy. Uh, But here's the big idea I want to explore. Baptism is Christ's unending embrace of us. And it's a witness not of our own faith, but of God's faithfulness. So open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Now, I've chosen this passage in Matthew, known as the Great Commission, because it's where Jesus institutes baptism as a continuing sacrament for the church. And what interests me about the two sacraments of the Gospels, baptism and communion, is their overlapping context. When Jesus instituted communion, which we looked at last week, it's in the midst of unfolding betrayal and moments away from his arrest and crucifixion. Communion was instituted just before his death, whereas baptism was instituted after his resurrection. Yet when Jesus does institute baptism as a continuing practice in the church, just as much of the brokenness exists around him. Look at verse 16. Now the 11 disciples. It's really easy to skip this verse without letting the weight of it sink in. The remaining core disciples, they're still grappling with all that's transpired in the past few days. They were formerly the 12, but now they're described for the first time as the 11. No more Judas. And what Judas did, the actions he took, they didn't happen in an isolated bubble. Judas not only betrayed uh, Jesus for money, he also betrayed all of his friends. And can you imagine that sickening, sinking feeling when Judas showed up with soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane to betray Christ? Yet that would be nothing compared to what was about to come. The next day, Judas has remorse and he returns the 30 pieces of silver that he returned. He throws them in the temple. And overcome with remorse, he hangs himself. Judas commits suicide. The betrayal would have been difficult enough but for Judas's life to end this way, you know, when the disciples heard the news, no matter what had happened in the past few days, grief would have struck their hearts. Judas killed himself? It's not supposed to end this way. And now they're gathered as the 11. And they're dealing with the crucifixion of Jesus and also the suicide of Judas. And while they're wrestling with that, their entire worlds have been turned upside down with the news that the dead come back to life, that Jesus really is alive. They're trying to grapple with the news of the resurrection. Life is not making sense. Some are experiencing grief. Some are experiencing awe and wonder. It's not simple. It's not clean. It's not tidy. It's complicated. And no wonder verse 17 says that some doubted. And I'm I'm dwelling in the messiness of this context for a moment because it's real. Discipleship takes place in the real world of hurt and disappointment, grief, confusion, excitement, awe, and worship. And when Jesus gives the church two sacraments, it's always within the context of a broken world, not a perfect world, the real world. 
in the context of things going astray and not everything being the way that we thought it would be. Some of the disciples, they're totally disoriented, confused, and doubting. Some of the other ones are in awe and worshiping. And yet Jesus calls all of them in verse 19. He commissions them. He says, go and make disciples. Are they even ready for this? Of course not. Does the resurrection trump what's going on in their lives then? Are they supposed to just power through? No, that's not it either. It's quite the contrary. Jesus meets them precisely in what's going on in their lives. And the, call, the calling to make disciples takes place there because the call to become a disciple maker doesn't come when our lives are neat and tidy. It comes in the places that we currently are because the call to be a disciple is never offered when all our circumstances are ideal and our ducks are in a row. It's imperfect people in imperfect circumstances meeting other imperfect people in imperfect circumstances and pointing them towards our perfect Savior who meets us in imperfect circumstances. The disciples, they're ready to go and make disciples because discipleship takes place in the real world and in the real things that they're experiencing in the moment. And their ability to disciple others, it never rests on their own strength or knowledge or resources. It always rests on the one who has commissioned them and sent them out on his behalf. So Jesus says in verse 19, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The heart of being a disciple is baptism. Because baptism is at the heart of Christian identity, and baptism is our greatest source of comfort. It's baptism that every single disciple needs in the mess of life. But from the outside looking in, baptism is a rather odd and pretty strange practice. I was in, living in Orlando and a friend uh, was on tour and he was coming, passing by and he actually landed on a day where I had to go to the beach and, and baptize some people for the church I was working at. And I said, you want to come? He's like, oh, sure. It's better than, you know, hanging out with the band. And so we go down to New Smyrna and we baptize a whole bunch of people. And he says, you know, what is this all about? Hey, I explain. He's like, you know, the only other time I ever went to a baptism was in Victoria, where we both grew up. And uh, he said they baptized her, but then lost grip of her, and she went down the stream. And uh, he said, I don't know what God is trying to say in that. I said, I don't know either, but that's not what baptism's all about. And he just looked at me and said, yeah, this is a pretty strange practice. I said, it is. So let's try to make some sense of baptism. What is it all about? Last week, we talked about the nature of sacraments. And we, we even memorized the catechist definition out of the Anglican catechism of a sacrament. Do you remember it? Who remembers it? No one. One person. All right. A sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. So let's say it again together. Uh, a sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. You need to write this truth on your heart because it will help you make sense of communion and baptism. Now, the outward and visible sign of baptism is water. We're baptized in water. We feel the wetness, a, a degree of cold. If we're submerged, it can feel as thick as molasses. Water it has this very distinct feel. And water in baptism is the sign of an inward and spiritual grace, something that God is doing. So what does the water signify? That's the question. 
And just like communion, we have to do some heavy lifting to make sense of baptism. So look again at verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're baptized into the name of God. We learn, then, that baptism signifies belonging to God and that this belonging is deeply intimate. We're not our own. We share in the life of God, the God who's revealed himself to us, the God who has made himself sensible to us, the triune God. Matthew writes that we're baptized in the name of the Father, in the name of the Father. J.I. Packer, he calls our baptism our second birthday. I like that. Uh, Why? Because in baptism, we're born again a second time. And now, I know that the term born again, it carries a lot of baggage and stigma. It's often associated with a bullheaded fundamentalism. But that's not what Jesus has in mind. Jesus says uh, to Nicodemus in John's gospel, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What does he mean? It means that we can't naturally see the kingdom of God. On our own, we can't make sense of it. Our natural senses are only good for sensing the physical world and we get so caught up in what we see and what we can touch in the here and now that even if the kingdom of God is standing directly in front of us, we say, what, where, huh, nah. And that's why so often in the Gospels, Jesus says, you're blind, you're blind, you're missing it. We think we can see, but we don't. We think we can hear, but we're deaf. And Jesus says, you hear, but you don't understand. We're so blind that when Jesus says we're blind, we say to him, I'm not blind. What are you talking about? I can see you right now, Jesus. And for you, that's your exact inner monologue right now. I'm not blind. What are you talking about? And you're in good company. This happens again and again in the scriptures. It can be Jesus' critics or it can be his most loyal followers, but we're all prone to missing it because we're blind. In our natural state, we can't make sense of God. And we talked about this in the first week of this series. We need our senses to be empowered by Jesus to see him for who he truly is. But in order for that to happen, we have to be born again. We need new senses that can actually perceive God in our midst. And in baptism, God the Father creates. He speaks, he declares, you're born again, happy birthday. You've been made new. And there's a clear line between the old and new what you once were and what you now are and continue to become. And suddenly, you can sense the kingdom of God. You can see it. You can touch it. You can taste it. But not until you're born anew. And of course, the question is how? Because baptism is surely more than just us taking a dip in the ocean. Uh, If it was that simple, everyone would be seeing the kingdom of God. And so what's so special about baptism that it makes us born again? Back to Matthew, he writes that we're baptized in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 4, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Before baptism is about life, it's about death. Paul says we go into the water, and when we do, we're dying with Christ. His death becomes ours. We're washed 
clean. Our sins are scrubbed away. And this is hard to believe, I know. Because we can make a tally of our sins pretty quickly. But baptism says we no longer need to be like Lady Macbeth. If you don't know Shakespeare, you're in good company. I had to just Google this. That's partially true. I read it in grade 11. But quick recap. Lady Macbeth conspires with her husband, Macbeth, and uh, they, they want the throne. And so they conspire a way to kill the king and, and take the throne, and it works. Better conscience. <laughs> Great Shakespearean uh, scholarship right there. You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> this is what happens when I try to be civilized. And so she can never wash her conscience clean. She can never wash her hands clean. And the, the famous line that she cries out is, Out, damned spot! Out, I say! Her conscience can't let it go. She can't let go of the wrong she's done, no matter how hard she tries. Now, I'm assuming no one in this room has been a part of a conspiracy to commit murder. Maybe you have. Uh, but I'm also assuming you know this feeling. A relentless shame or guilt that won't go away. A sense of unworthiness because all of you've said and thought or done in your life. Yet when we're baptized into Christ's death, we don't have to try and try and try to make ourselves shameless or guiltless or worthy. If it was up to us, our conscience could never let go of the mistakes we've made entirely. We might find ways to numb it, but we'll never fully escape it. If cleaning ourselves up depended solely on us, we would only see unrelenting blemishes. Like Lady Macbeth, we'd be washing our hands over and over again, even if nothing was there. But when we're buried with Christ, when we're entirely and utterly forgiven, we've been given an untarnishable, clean slate. We're made white as snow. We go into the water and we die with Christ, but we come out alive, born again, resurrected with him, raised up with Christ, and we're given abundance of life, resurrected life. Paul says the newness of life, and this new life is defined fundamentally by freedom. We're free. We're not perfect, but we're free. All the things that separated us from God are gone. Life doesn't have to be the same as it was. In the common language, out with the old and in with the new. As we're born again, the Spirit of God fills us and makes us free. As Matthew writes, we're baptized in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. The spirit and, the ba and baptism are always connected like this. And in the scriptures, I just got to admit, it's hard to pinpoint at what moment someone receives the spirit. Sometimes they're baptized and they receive the spirit. Sometimes they receive the spirit and then they get baptized. But the two are always interrelated. And the spirit always is at work in the moment of baptism. And in baptism, we've died. We've been born again. We've been given new life, but we're brought into the family of God. When we receive the Spirit, we're adopted. We're adopted as children of God. And there's language I know out there that says, you know, every person is a child of God. And I don't want to demean that statement. I get the, the sentiment behind it, but it's simply not true. Every single person is made in the image of God, and that image of God bestows dignity upon every single human on this earth, no matter how tarnished that image of God may be within them. But people are not de facto God's children. We have to be adopted. But when we're adopted, we belong to God. We're not orphans. We're not slaves. We're so much more. Paul writes in Galatians 4, 6 through 7, God has sent the spirit of his son 
into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. Abba, Father. Abba. Abba is an intimate word. Father is pretty formal for most of us, but Abba isn't necessarily informal like daddy per se. It's intimate. It, before Christianity, it had never been used in reference to God ever. Yet when Jesus himself prayed, he called God the Father, Abba. And the Aramaic, Aramaic is preserved rather than translated into Greek because it's believed this is exactly the word Jesus used and they want to preserve it. It describes the intimate father-child relationship of the father and the son. When I hold Ansley, she wraps you know, her little arms around me and squeezes me as tight as she can. Now she like pats me on the shoulder and uh, I can't describe the love that I feel for her in that moment. I can't. It's a fullness. That's the best I can say. There's nothing else in the world like it. I'm her father. And in that moment, nothing can change that. We are connected. I'm hers and she is mine. And it's the same with Maggie. There's just a whole lot more spit up with Maggie right now, but it's the same. An earthly father embracing his child and his child embracing him. That's Abba. God as Abba is a tethering. It's an inner connectedness that cannot be broken. It's an inseparable binding of us to God. The Spirit fills us so that we cry out like Jesus, my Father, my Abba, my God. Baptism then signifies that your relationship with God has fundamentally changed. God only relates to you as his child, which means God is always caring for you. You can relate to God as Abba, Father, and it means any hopelessness in our life, any sense that things simply cannot change is a lie. It's a straight-up lie because God, our Father, has embraced us as children and will not let us go. Leonard Vanderzee, a scholar, puts it this way, uh, baptism as a sacrament of identity says to us every day, you are a son or daughter of God, you are loved. So recapping so far, baptism signifies that we belong to God the Father because of the death and resurrection of the Son. And that because of what Jesus accomplished, we receive the Spirit of God who assures us of our Adoption as God's children. Baptism signifies all of this. And there's more. And something immediately becomes clear. Baptism is not primarily about our own faith. Baptism is not primarily about our own faith. It's about God's promises declared to us. Our faith matters. But baptism should not be reduced down to just a public testimony of an inward conversion. It can be that, but that's not entirely the picture of the scriptures. And if you stop there, it's terribly reductionistic. It functionally makes baptism about us instead of God. Sure, declaring our faith is an implicit reality of baptism. I'm not denying that. But baptism is much, 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 much more than that. It's a sign. It signifies what God has done, that he's made us his own. Baptism, then, is a declaration 
of God's faithfulness. It's a declaration of all that God has done in Christ Jesus. It's a declaration of his promises fulfilled and placed upon our lives. It's a declaration that God saves, God redeems, God frees, God adopts. It's all about God and his graciousness towards us. Now turning back to Matthew chapter 28. I know we've been through a few verses. We learn another key reality about baptism. It creates a new person, a new people. Look at verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This is huge. Last week we talked about how God is a God of covenant. And that a covenant is how we discover just how faithful God really is. But throughout history up until Jesus and the new covenant, God always made covenants with his people, with Israel. And the sign of that covenant was circumcision. But the sign of the new covenant, according to Paul in Colossians, is baptism. Baptism is the circumcision of Christ. Which means baptism is the sign of the new covenant. And Matthew says it's for all nations. Everyone is invited to be a part of this. Everyone can bear the mark, whether Jew or Greek. In the old covenant even, only males could receive the sign of baptism. But in the new covenant, women can also receive the sign of baptism. This is a revolutionary empowerment of, of women to bear the mark of the covenant. In the old covenant, women, uh, children, female children and male children, uh, could no, just male children, let's get this clear, just male children could receive the sign of circumcision. Um, yeah, you're catching up with me, I know. Uh, in the new covenant, I'm going to offend a few people, I know. How dare we say that children cannot receive the sign of the covenant? That actually makes the new covenant less than the old. If children could receive the sign of the covenant before they had faith, surely in the new covenant it is greater and better. But we'll deal with that in Equip and Build a few weeks from now. Uh, the point is that everyone, no matter age, no matter ethnicity, no matter identity or background, Everyone are welcomed into the waters of Christ. Look at Galatians 3, 27 through 29. For as many of you were baptized in Christ, have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. This isn't just a passing theme in Paul's theology. Look at Romans 10, 12 through 13. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a powerful, beautiful reality. God is creating a new people. Christ is bringing together his bride, the church, made up of all nations, every sort of person you can imagine. And so baptism, it's a sign that we belong to God. It's a sign of what God has done for us, and it's a sign of God's new people. But like communion, baptism needs to be received by faith. As Paul says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We're saved by grace through faith. It's God who saves us, and our faith brings us into that saving work. And our faith leads us into the waters of baptism. But it is faith that saves, not baptism. Just as a wedding ring is a sign of the wedding, but of the marriage, but not the marriage itself, baptism is a sign of our salvation. 
But maybe you're thinking, well, if it's faith that saves us, why do we need to be baptized? Or, at this point in the sermon, maybe you're thinking, I've been baptized. Why do I need to keep thinking about this? Here's why. Baptism is Christ's unending embrace of us. You see, some people, they have dramatic moments of salvation. They can name the place, the time, what they were wearing, what they were eating, and they can say definitively, at that moment, you know, my life was changed. I encountered Jesus. He saved me. You know, I went from black and white to technicolor. That's beautiful, and it's good. But it's just one type of salvation moment. It's not the defining or normal experience of all people. Some people find it really hard to say at what moment they started to believe. You know, you know right now that you believe in Jesus and that you've believed in him for some time and that you follow him. But you can't say at what exact moment your faith became a saving faith. And that's okay. That's just another type of salvation moment. It's not defining or the normal experience of all people. But every single person, no matter their moment of believing, has something in common. There are times, and sometimes serious times, where we struggle with our faith. Life happens. We're either busy or we neglect nurturing our faith, or tragedy happens and we withdraw from faith. And over time, we can re reflect upon our faith and we start to worry. Is my faith enough? Is it enough? Does what remains of my faith count for anything at all? Because faith takes place in the real world, the real world that distracts us and keeps us busy and preoccupied, the real world where disaster hits, suicide happens, cancer happens, and faith can sometimes take a beating in these storms. Here's the thing. If our trust is in our faith, then we're definitely in trouble. But we're not saved by faith we're saved by grace through faith. We're saved by grace, not by faith. And baptism reminds us of this. Martin Luther, the great uh, reformer, really, you know, the founder of, of, of the Reformation. If you haven't done church history, he's like the guy who started the Kickstarter for Protestants. Um, he struggled with anxiety and depression throughout his whole life. It's well documented. And he had times of Crippling doubt. And yet, during these internal struggles and even times of external persecution, Martin Luther had this phrase that he would repeat over and over to himself. Baptizatus sum. It's fun to say. Baptizatus sum. Try it. Yeah, but with like more energy. Baptizatus zoom. All right. It means... I am baptized. That's all it means. I am baptized. It seems like such a basic declaration for such a great mind like Luther's. But nevertheless, baptism to assume, Luther would say to himself, why? Because it's not the church or a person that baptizes us, but Jesus Christ himself. In baptism, God proclaims us loved and wanted. Loved and wanted even when we would rather die. Loved and wanted even when others seek our death. Which is a reality for Luther. Loved and wanted even when we can't believe it to be true in the moment. Baptism speaks otherwise. Baptizatus sum, I am baptized, Luther would cry. 
No matter what the world can throw at us, no matter how weak our faith may be in a season, no matter what, your baptism stands. God baptized you. You didn't baptize yourself. It doesn't matter when your baptism was or how old you were or how strong or weak your faith was at that time in comparison to now. God has declared promises to you at your baptism and he will not go back on his word. You too can cry out, baptize to assume I am baptized. But why is this so comforting? Luther once said, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Love that. It's the promise at the end of our passage in Matthew's gospel. Look at verse 20. For those who are baptized, Jesus says, Behold, I'm with you always. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus will not let you go. You are enveloped in Christ's unending embrace. He has reached out and he has touched us. He has wrapped his arms around us. And you can know this comfort in your baptism. When your faith is weak, your baptism remains strong because your baptism is about what God has done for you, what God has promised for you, and he has promised to carry you through until the end. Finally, baptism is a witness to others, not of our own faith, but of God's faithfulness. As I said, our faith brings us into God's grace, but it's always God who first reached out and touched us and saved us. And through baptism, God creates his new people, the bride of Christ, the church, and he says, go, make disciples, be disciple makers. And this isn't a passive activity of the church. Next to praising and glorifying God, it's our primary activity. The Great Commission to be disciple makers, who baptizes one that meets us in the real world, and that's the beauty of it. We go out into the world where there's brokenness and hurt, confusion and pain, joy and, and, and love. And we go out and we extend something better than our own touch, better than the comfort that we can offer, better than our own embrace. We offer baptism. Jesus, he's made sense to us by reaching out and touching us with the waters of baptism. And he makes himself sensible through us as we go out and we make disciples and we teach them all that Jesus has to say and we offer them baptism, but we don't offer them faith. We offer them God's faithfulness and the great promises declared in the gospel. Because at the end of the day, baptism is our arrival. It is our unending embrace in the arms of Christ. Nothing can take that away from you. So have you been baptized? Have you been baptized? Come to Christ in faith. And if it's time, be baptized. And if you have been baptized, remember your baptism. Baptize it soon. Jesus has reached out and touched us and is always with us. He's also given us this great promise so that he can make himself known through us in the world.